Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people we've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity, and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda, and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding of the world around you, and hopefully not challenge your attention span. The strangest of men are often also the most ordinary. Take your archetypal American. Raised in a hard-working Midwestern family from Ohio, he played American football, has a degree in Spanish and history, works in a white-collar role and loves his family and children. Raised by his parents who were in education and with a background in teaching himself, he is no stranger to critical evaluation. Yet on the hot-button issues of today, his mind, like many others, is often at war between opposing cognitive forces. Increasingly, we fail to distinguish the false from the factual, particularly in a social media-dominated world that often privileges belief above objective truth. The two have begun to blur in the minds of some. What's the difference between information and propaganda when it's all there in black and white? This episode of Media Minded looks at the anti-vax movement over the past two decades. What does an anti-vaxxer look like? How does one become embedded in such a movement? How does the conspiracy theory flourish during times of perceived threat, lack of control, and of course uncertainty? And how you, the audience, can protect yourself and your loved ones from the tempted mirage of comfort that conspiracy theories often bring. Craig's story exemplifies the decline of critical thinking skills within modern society. Increasingly, it is beginning to feel like the world's gone mad. And in many ways, those feelings are right. Well, almost. It is not a question of madness, but rather exposure to an unregulated sphere where mis, dis, and malinformation are neatly wrapped up in an algorithm that keeps you coming back. Some of you might be thinking, what the hell is this miss or malinformation? In a nutshell, it is the spread of false information and the intent behind that spread. I know I'm sounding a little bit like your out of touch grandpa who warns you about the dangers of the internet, but the move into the digital age has magnified what were once thought as fringe points of view. And you only have to look around at the world right now in this global pandemic to see the danger that this poses. In our misinformation rich world, 
Craig's story shows that even intelligent, decent, and otherwise rational members of society can be corrupted by misleading, dangerous, and completely false conspiracy theories. For this ordinary man, it took a moment, a community, and the tendrils of blinding, unyielding affection to lead him down a path in which his suspicion of Western medicine spiraled into a belief that vaccines were harmful. Craig is not alone. This is part of a wider phenomenon sweeping the globe. We see conspiracy theories everywhere, from debates on this morning over whether the moon landing was faked to more serious discussion by The Economist exploring why conspiracy theories are surging. This phenomenon has been a point of interest for Doreen Dodgen McGee, an award-winning author and psychologist. She has traveled the globe researching and speaking about how technology affects our brains and our relationships with a particular focus on dismantling conspiracy theories and shedding light on the psychological conditions that act as a catalyst in them taking hold. All right, so we are joined now by Craig um, Edelbrook, I believe. No, Craig, uh, Edelbrook. Edelbrook. My apologies. I'm gonna, no problem. I'm going to blame that on my dyslexia. But thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. Um, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Amazing, amazing. So, um, why don't we just start off by telling telling me a little bit about yourself, about your upbringing? Uh, sure. Uh, so I was raised in the Midwestern United States in a college town. Uh, my both my parents were uh, and I'm, they're retired now, but they were college professors. Uh, my mom at first was a stay at home mom, but eventually she went back to work and became a stay at home professor. Uh, my dad taught uh, business and later computer science, um, and my mom taught uh, Spanish. And um, I'm one of two children and, you know, very traditional American upbringing. I uh, was raised Catholic, but wasn't too strong in the faith. Um, you know, loved playing baseball. Uh, and, uh, you know, very traditional background when it came to also to, to medical, uh, our stance on medical issues. Uh, you know, we, when the doctor said we needed to do something, we did it. And uh, that's sort of how I was raised. Amazing. And, and you said that your, your parents were in education? Yeah, they... both of them. Were, yeah, they're both professors. Yeah. Okay. And and were you vaccinated as a child? Because you, you said that. Yes, you... definitely. Yeah. No, everything, everything was by the book um, that, you know, it was completely vaccinated. Uh, you know, to, it was to such an extent that when the dentist kept on saying that I shouldn't wait to have my teeth, my wiggly teeth uh, fall out, he would, he would actually they take me to the dentist and pull them. It's like whenever a doctor, a, den a dentist said to do something, that's, that's always what we did. And it was always, it always worked out fine. I mean, I, I felt like it was a little bit more medical intervention than was sometimes necessary, but it wasn't anything I complained about when I was a kid. That's, that's super interesting. Cause obviously you often think that, um, you know, there's, there's all these stereotypes of, of people that, um, you know, mm -hmm. believe in, uh, or don't believe in vaccines or, or, or yeah. consider themselves an anti, anti-vaxxers. And you're kind of the, the the almost the opposite. You know, you come from a um, educated household in the sense that both yeah. of your parents were in education. Um, right. You were religiously listening to doctors and medical advice. 
Craig's story forms part of a wider anti-vax movement, a movement that capitalizes on a general lack of understanding of how vaccines work. The dissemination of misinformation fuels beliefs that vaccines cause unspoken harms or that vaccinations infringe on personal, political, or religious rights. It has sparked vicious cultural wars between pro and anti-vaxxers. But what does this mean for those branded as normies or <laughs> sheeple, or in other words, mainstream society? Often conspiracy theories and those who believe in them are seen as existing in society's fringes. The anti-vax movement as we understand it today dates back to the 1980s and 1990s and has turned into a veritable crusade. The modern anti-vax movement is characterized by a new phenomenon, celebrities. This is not only included in popular figures of cinema and TV, but self-professed experts, some of whom have no background in medicine or infectious diseases. Some of you will be too young to remember this, but back in 1994, Miss America Heather Whitestone, noted as the first hearing impaired Miss America title holder, suggested that her hearing impairment was caused by the DTAP vaccine. The DTAP stands for diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis. Yeah, this is probably why they just call it the tetanus shot. You know, the one you get as a kid. Creators of misinformation like Heather Whitestone and discredited academic Andrew Wakefield, who claimed that the measles, mumps and rubella, you know, MMR vaccine, predisposed children to neurological conditions, including autism, have catapulted the anti-vax movement into the mainstream. It was later discovered that many of Wakefield's and Whitestone's assessments were fraudulent, but the damage caused by their work was already done. Today, we will never truly know the effect that Joe Rogan and his guests' patently false claims surrounding the COVID-19 virus and vaccine, including that the vaccine is essentially gene therapy, or that ivermectin alone is capable of driving COVID-19 to extinction, have had on the spread of the virus, and the world's willingness to become vaccinated against it. The Joe Rogan Experience is the most listened to podcast on Spotify, reaching an estimated 11 million people per episode. That's a lot of people to be potentially misleading three to four times per week. It is through this use of celebrities and the media that fringe views trickle into the discussions and belief systems of the average person. You will seldom find a friendship group that hasn't discussed whether 9-11 was an inside job because jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. We've got to the point where it's pub talk, or maybe that's just me. Despite continuous effort from the government, world health organizations, and every health activist under the sun, to this day, there are many anti-vaxxing proponents who claim that vaccines put your health at risk. As we see in Craig's experience, it can literally happen to anyone. What does an anti-vaxxer look like? Um, are there kind of key markers, sociological, psychological? Like, you know, when you there's certain stereotypes, right, about different people and, and and different people that have certain ideologies or certain beliefs. And you know, when you think of a conspiracy theorist, you normally think of you know the the tinfoil hat and the 
uh, kind of living in the wild, kind of off grid, you know, creating their own water or, or, or kind of like trying to suck up sunlight or whatever. Um, <laughs> what does an anti-vaxxer actually look like? I think it's kind of a complex question, which I, I love complex questions, but I think right now individuals who are either hesitant or resistant to getting the vaccine look like a lot of different people. <laughs> and I think one of the issues is that when we oversimplify it and just say this is an anti-vaxxer and this is a vaxxer, uh, we miss a lot of the really subtle dynamics. So I think one of the characteristics of um, people who have chosen to trust <laughs> a different set of data than individuals who are, are choosing to take the leap of faith toward the vaccine and the science route is that a lot of the information that they get is in digital spaces and, um, and that they rely on things like uh, language that tells them that something is a reliable source uh, and and or they have already up to the time of the pandemic created an algorithm that feeds them an increased amount of information that would lean against the science of the vaccine or lean against the trust in the man or uh, any kind of institution that would suggest um, going down the path of vaccination right now. And so I do believe that these are individuals <clears throat> who um, also, you know, not only are they being fed more of what they already believe, but their algorithms are also feeding them more of what is kind of um, sensationalist because mm -hmm. algorithms <laughs> tend to work that way. So they, they start out maybe questioning, but they become pretty, um, pretty firm in their stance uh, pretty quickly. And then if they have been vocal or outwardly uh, communicative about that stand, they build up what, what scientists and, and psychologists call confirmation bias, which, which means that they start kind of cherry picking the data that they look at. And we all do this, all of us are, are guilty of this action where we tend to disregard data or information that disproves something that we feel adamant about. And then we also kind of have skin in the game. So we don't want to potentially expose ourselves to shame or to having looked ignorant. So we just get further and further down the path of being committed to this uh, stand we've taken, which is called commitment bias. So we, we have confirmation bias that lets us stay only kind of in touch with information that we're committed to and once we're committed we stay committed yeah no definitely definitely and and you're you're so right that we're all we're all kind of susceptible to this because obviously we've all got we've all got interests you know, we've all got um biases towards stuff regardless of how benign it is you know if you if you really love chocolate not that i'm suggesting that i do necessarily but you know if there's an article out there that um you know talks about its benefits i'm gonna probably be more inclined to believe it even if it comes from uh i don't know real chocolate news now dot net dot whatever <laughs> i mean i hope not but yeah um and it's interesting you you say this because um someone like craig is i i think really really interesting just because you know both of his parents um are are educated you know um higher education educated um, he was an educator himself for a time, you know, they, they weren't shy of Western medicine, you know, he, he was vaccinated himself. So he, in my view, it kind of breaks the mold of what a, of what you'd think of an anti-vaxxer. And it's almost, his story kind of 
terrified me a little bit because it just shows that anybody, regardless of how, you know, your, your home could be full of academics and you could be caught up in it. Truly. And I think that makes what Craig um, is doing today so kind of um, beautiful and brave because we live in a time where we really are kind of we see humanity split on a binary where people are, are very black and white pro or against many many things but once someone has has kind of um committed themselves to a stance for them to be willing to come back and say as he does um here's where i made some cognitive jumps that maybe I wish I wouldn't have, <laughs> or here's where I started down a little bit of a slippery slope that became a lot of a slippery slope. And, mm -hmm. and that is just such a, um, a brave thing to do in today's digital economy, especially. Oh yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, I think breaking out of any kind of view that's that intense, I think takes, takes a sheer amount of bravery because also, you know, I guess the deeper you go into this, the more you isolate yourself from your friends and your, and your family and all this kind of stuff. And you, you end up building your new relationships in that community. So you end up almost, you know, just burying yourself and obviously separating yourself from that community, from, from that ideology rather, separates yourself from all the kind of friends and connections that you've made. So, um, yeah, I mean, all, all power to him. I, well, and I think that that's a real a real issue that um, has emerged in this time where the medical community and the scientific community has has sort of responded to the natural and and real and very right fear that we all have by saying, do this thing and then you'll be safe. But they don't really address the whole idea of relationships or wellness or spirituality or belonging. And I think a lot of the movements that are anti-vaccination have tapped into that, you know, mm. be, be a well and whole and strong person. Uh, you're part of our community now. Um, and so, so it makes it easier to take a jump into that community because they really are addressing the whole person, mm -hmm. maybe in a little different way than, than the scientific community is. It almost sounds a bit like a cult where, you know, you, you want to be a part of something unique and you're the chosen people and you know this truth that the majority of the, to use um, some of their lingo, the sheeple don't know, you know, they're, they're not a part of and they're not in the know and, and they're all being ignorant and just following, following scientists, you know, Christ knows why. Um, <laughs> But it is, yeah, it's this, it's this kind of wanting to feel special, wanting to feel different that I think also also plays plays a part in it. Um, oh, yeah. And when, the other part of that is that when we feel afraid and out of control, as humans, we do not, we're not made for those feelings. We do not like those feelings. So anything that can give us a greater sense of personal agency or control, either one of those, like I can make my own decision or I can kind of be in control of what's happening, somehow tamps down our fear. And one thing I think is really interesting is a lot of people who are very, um, I would say a majority of people who are very pro-vaccine are also feeling very respectful of this virus. Like mm. they are very aware that they are gonna probably be afraid for a while and they're probably gonna feel somewhat out of control. Um, but individuals who have chosen not to, on, on a whole, if I'm really simplifying things, mm. tend to have more of a feeling of like, certainty and security and don't experience as much of that fear which is really interesting to me the process in which one comes to believe in conspiracy theories is often gradual 
and based on existing within social systems, in which traditional patterns of thought are challenged. By social systems, we mean relationships, groups, and the environment that all interconnect and create an echo chamber for those inside of it. For this reason, it is often difficult to identify a specific turning point or moment in which one becomes embedded in a conspiracy theory. But they're often a series of small changes that lure an individual further down the rabbit hole. For instance, Craig. There's a good student, uh, went to college at a small liberal arts, liberal arts college about three hours away from where I lived. It was still in Indiana. It was a lot more progressive than uh, my upbringing. Um, and I went to college there, completed my degree in history and Spanish, and then got a teaching certification, um, which, uh, you know, I taught for a few years, but then eventually fell into writing, uh, where now I'm a full-time nonfiction writer uh, and editor. Uh, and, and I've even worked, uh, you know, for the last decade in, in uh, medical journalism. Uh, oh, wow. uh as writing for people with type 1 diabetes so that's that's amazing and it's yeah. i mean no um to be direct like what what happened like what was the what was the trigger that led you, <laughs> like, that led you into because you're literally yeah. like the more the more i talk to you the more i hear your story the more i'm like yeah. this is you know literally the if if i were the to opposite. paint you right if i were to paint a picture yeah. of what a anti-vaxxers meant to look like and meant to have a background you'll you'll you probably tick every single box the opposite way around what happened with me is i mean i that's something i'm still trying to piece together i mean i could tell you the steps that got me there but i think it's sort of a lifetime to try and figure unpack um exactly mentally how i got there um i so i went to so i went to this liberal arts college and you know one of the things you're doing as as you know is anyone who's grown up is is that you're trying to like pull away from your parents and pull away from upbringing and decide what to keep and what not to keep right you're, you're at university and, and obviously you start to get your rebellious yeah. phase you start yeah, to do yeah. certain things that your parents wouldn't necessarily um want you to do right right yeah and first you know i started eating vegetarian i had two uh, two different um in, in succession i had two different um vegetarian girlfriends and they were much better cooks uh than i was used to having and so i started eating vegetarian and then with my second girlfriend it was like it wasn't just about eating vegetarian it was like about trying to live you know serve a more natural life and so uh now she and i uh you know after college we you know we had started living together and actually we um eventually got married and together i think we sort of uh, we're just sort of on this quest to live more naturally and things sort of took a step-by-step -step process that got to this idea that, you know, if you live naturally, and eat naturally, and we were vegan at that point. So we weren't eating any dairy or, or eggs or anything. And we just sort of had this idea that you could just keep on getting more and more pure with your body and, and your intentions and, and, and pollute less. And you were all these good intentions, but somewhere along the line, it got to the idea that, well, vaccines might, you know, have certain uh, chemicals in them or, or preservatives. I mean, I don't remember what we were exactly thinking. And so by the time, you know, it was time for me to be a parent, uh, you know, it was a, it was a choice where we really wanted to live as naturally as possible and have our child be raised as naturally as possible. And it happened to coincide with the, um, 
the peak time where there was the hysteria over uh, whether or not or the false idea, excuse me, the false idea that that uh, vaccines could cause a rise in autism rates. And, um, you know, that was just becoming to be an idea that was gaining a lot of play within liberal circles. And you were hearing that, obviously, and that was that was influencing your from from your from your your gateway, uh, your gateway, uh, your gateway from veganism. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, and this is a several years long process. And there was a lot of, you know, very strange ideas that we were trying out at that point. And um, that just happened to become one of them. And unfortunately, it just sort of, it, you know, there was a lot of silly ideas that we had that didn't hurt anyone or weren't putting us in danger. Like at one point we were into uh, the idea of pet telepathy and we were trying to talk to Sorry, talk pet tele- telepathy. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to ask you, like, <laughs> we're going to have to expand it. You can't, I'm not going to let you just yes. roll past that. What? <laughs> what is pet telepathy? So the idea with is that somewhere we got into the idea that you could telepathically talk to animals. And we, I even in our house, like I'm telling you, we got a little bit out there. And I even in our house, <laughs> we hosted someone who was a, who could teach that. And we tried for a weekend to sit there and stare at our animals <laughs> and try and hear what they had to say. So I've just, I've just know, got this image of, of like, <laughs> did you like when you were walking in the street and you, you, you saw a pigeon, did you kind of lock eyes with it and be like, don't, don't. No, I think you have to have a relationship with them. I guess I don't. <laughs> I don't quite remember the boundaries of that. I mean, there was, you know, I, I guess the idea was that if you could unlock this, then maybe you could talk to right. all animals. I don't know. It's it. It doesn't make a lot of sense now, but it was something that we tried, and I mean, I mean and so there's all these like try one, things. try more, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's like it, you just get the problem is we sort of got in our. We were out in Maine. And uh, which is an isolate, you know, can be an isolated state, it's a big state with not a lot of people, and happens to have a lot of people who are involved in sort of counterculture or living naturally. And so you can find some community there which sort of echoes your sentiments if you're mm-hmm. uh, sort of going out beyond what science would say is rational. And uh, we are also like, also, we didn't have a lot of other people in our lives that weren't in that kind of circle. And we didn't have social media. We didn't even have computers because we were trying to live like hippies in the woods. And so I sort of got into this sort of feedback loop, the, uh, you know, where you were sort of almost like reinforcing each other's very strange ideas. Um, and in a way, I so feel the like physical, well, the physical equivalent of what we see nowadays with um, uh, social media bubbles. Yeah. You know where where yeah. you're where you're where you're just reinforcing each other's beliefs, whether they're right or wrong. You're just regurgitating the same thing, and you've got no one challenging or, or offering an alternative viewpoint. By yeah, the sounds of it. Yeah, that, that that I mean, there certainly weren't a lot of people that were um, challenging our viewpoints. Uh, not enough people. Um, my you know, my parents were they were sort of there was so much I was throwing at them that was outlandish that they sort of once a, a grandchild came along our relationship was uh, you know tense enough that they weren't pushing too hard on a lot of different things so they didn't challenge it and you know and it's hard to remember now that we're in the middle of a pandemic but at the time childhood vaccines you know were for childhood illnesses that seemed largely gone in the United States which we now know is you know false that that can come back at any time uh, but it just seemed more like an academic exercise so while my parents were sitting there worrying about you know whether I was doing 
strange action X, Y, or Z, they decided that, you know, vaccines weren't something to push too hard on. Um, and, you know, my in-laws were a bit more na into natural living at the time and, uh, you know, and, and had a very live and let live attitude, uh, which is very uh, part of being in Maine, which is a very, you know, like I said, it's a very rural rustic area in most of the, most of the state anyway. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't push you hard. I mean, my mother-in-law uh, was, uh, was actually a nurse, but she was also into, um, and she was actually, she had a, uh, a program for first time parents and she definitely wanted us to get our, uh, our child vaccinated, but we didn't, uh, but she didn't push hard on it. Uh, because did you, can I ask, did you, did you get your child vaccinated? That's a good, that's a good question. Sorry. I didn't, uh, wasn't trying to hide that the headline there. It, no, at the time we did not. Um, and in fact, my child and this, you know, this is one of those things that it took me a long time to, you know, to write about this, you know, until the years after she was eventually caught up and fully vaccinated, because it's, it's a shameful feeling to realize that while I thought I was doing what was best for my child, I left her completely unprotected, um, you know, until she was basically six or seven years old, uh, from, you know, some very preventable, uh, and very deadly, uh, you know, um, you know, childhood diseases. Craig raised that he was questioning a lot of things and that a change in an environment acted as a catalyst. But at least in my experience, it is often the lonely and isolated that are most susceptible to conspiratorial thinking. But I'm no academic. I think Dorian can give us a bit more insight into this. Well, I, I believe that loneliness plays a huge role, uh, even prior to the pandemic, you know, globally, if you look back at journalism right before that time, people were talking pretty consistently about an epidemic or pandemic of loneliness. <laughs> and we know that there is a relationship between our technology use and our sense of loneliness. Uh, there's actually research that came out right prior to the pandemic out of University of Pennsylvania that showed that even only 30 minutes of social media use a day, which would include things like video gaming, where we're getting a primary source of our social connection, 30 minutes a day of that not, is not only correlated with depression and anxiety and a sense of, of um, missing out relationally, so, which is loneliness, um, but it actually can cause those things. It can cause loneliness, it can cause depression and anxiety. And we know that the pandemic amped up our media use. Um, and so there is this kind of, I think, coexisting sense of both um, fear and a desire, a deep desire to belong that humans have, you know, to, to, to belong, to not feel alone. And um, in some ways, this is a place that makes us vulnerable then to things like conspiratorial thinking, where we are very much again invited into a community and we are invited into this special way of thinking that, that holds also special actions. Like you mentioned cult behavior, you know, choosing not to get a vaccine <clears throat> is an action that you take and it's kind of almost like an initiation. <laughs> And, and so, so, so is getting a vaccine. But I think when we are lonely and we want that kind of um, mm. hit of feeling connected, we will look for and seek out the communities that feel more kind of emotionally compelling. And I do think that that is one of the things that the, that the anti-vaccination movement, um, you know, is pretty strong and, and good at doing. Um, so Craig touched on how we're all um, social creatures. 
How does the wellness and spiritual community cater to our emotional needs in a way that science and scientists tend not to? I think they they start by recognizing that we can't know everything. <laughs> and that's just a human truth. And so whenever somebody says, well, this is the thing to do and we know it's going to help, I think there are certain temperament types and personality types that will say, well, that's not mm. true for everyone. That can't be the case for everyone. And so in some ways, I do really think that the wellness and spirituality communities start by saying, everything is sort of mystical. We don't know everything, you know, we're, we're all taking this big leap of faith and, and this leap of faith towards purity or, um, is, is a more, um, spiritually grounded one or is a more, um, intensely human, you know, leans into our independence and our personal agency. And so when we start with this kind of truth that, we are whole beings and there's no way that there one answer can be right for every person. <laughs> it suddenly, it suddenly makes us again, feel like, Oh, we're seen. Oh yeah, that's true. I don't want to just be part of the, the fish swimming. Um, and so I do think that, that, and they also do, I think a better job of addressing the fact that we are emotional people living in a really difficult time. You know, I, I have all along during the pandemic mm -hmm. said that this is a marathon, not a sprint. But the tricky thing is, is we didn't even realize we were running a race until like four or five months in. <laughs> so we'd already been sprinting for a long time. And then we realized, oh no, now we've got to come up with some kind of strategy for getting through this physically, emotionally, um, and our mental health started to really pay a price. So I think, you know, any kind of leader um, or any, but any influencer, which is also a tricky thing. Those are two communities that tend to be deeply impacted by influencers. Our whole culture is impacted by influencers, but influencers are given, we kind of suspend our um, judgment and, and we give them a lot of our trust without necessarily knowing whether or not we can trust them. <laughs> just, you know, they're just given kind of influence and privilege in our, in the, especially the digital world. Um, but when those folks kind of speak to the unknown or say, hey, we know this is so hard, you know, and we know it's or or it comes out really adamant. We know this is so hard, but we've got to keep doing it. But they do. They kind of there's more of a of a um, supportive or cheerleader kind of approach or you know, then then the scientists who say, well, here are the, are the new variants and we hope that this will affect this and. It's just this whole kind of um, mm. holistic way that they approach. From Craig's story and in general, from what I know, relationships play a huge role in conspiracy theories taking hold. The social groups you interact with or don't create echo chambers. We've all done it. Be influenced by someone close to us. Even I believed my aunt who said that I should hold my breath for 10 seconds. And if I didn't cough, it meant I was COVID free. Looking back, this is complete madness. For Craig, going off to college, meeting a new partner and experimenting with alternative approaches to his diets and medicine acted as a catalyst in a process that led him to the anti-vax movement. As an outsider, it can be hard to challenge these points of view in a way that is productive. You only have to go online and type in anti-vaxxer to see the battles within social media comment sections. Uh, 
aside from obviously your, your your parents, you know, being being educators and you being an educator yourself and, and having a degree, um, you mentioned you know you had people around you that that were in the medical profession. Um, mm -hmm. When when I mean, did your did your friends and family can like, did they find out that you were that mm -hmm. you were moving towards these kind of conspiracy theories? And did they did they challenge you on it, or was it a bit more of a kind of live and let live? Well, that's a good question. It, I mean, I think part of the problem is we didn't. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends at that point. Uh, I had already sort of isolated myself from mm. some of my co uh, college friends. And that was part of the problem. It wasn't a hell. I mean, everyone, I, you know, I think, and it's important to emphasize, like everyone's journey towards uh, a conspiracy theory is varied. But for me, it's like isolating was part of what made me susceptible to that. Uh, right. You know, I was already, I would, I, you know, I was in a relationship that was difficult and we were and but we were sort of all encompassing and, so a lot of my friends fell by the wayside or I cut them off or, and the same thing with my parents, like, you know, things were getting more and more estranged, uh, you know, we're, at, we're on, on good terms now, but um, so there was, I think there were challenges, but there weren't challenges that really made much of an impact, um, you know, and, and like I said, there was sort of a live and let live attitude where, you know, we, it's interesting. You get this sort of feedback. It's like, you'll get this feedback, but you'll dismiss it pretty easily. If you're, if you're really hanging on to a conspiracy theory or, or, you know, or a belief that's very unpopular, it's like, you know, there were doctors who just wouldn't take us. They just physically wouldn't, wouldn't see my child, but would there they was challenge one. You at all or would they just turn you away? Like what was the, what was like, you walk into a doctor's office. What was the exchange? Or somehow in the conversation and in intake, we'd say, you know, Hey, you know, this is the childhood's history and you no, know, we haven't vaccinated. And they say, you know, there'd be people that say, I, sorry, I can't see someone who's, you know, whose child is not vaccinated or isn't willing to get vaccinated. And we said, okay, thank you. It was very polite. Um, there, and it just happened to be, we found a doctor and I think this was actually kind of important. Like I, I could see why some doctors would also say, I can't treat you because it, you know, poses a risk to my population or I don't want to treat you because you're not, uh, you know, going to listen to medical advice. But we had a doctor who was like, I really would like to, you guys to get vaccinated, but I'm going to see your child anyway. And so that helped create space for dialogue. And I feel like even though that dialogue didn't lead us to get our child vaccinated while we were under her care, I think it was an important, just like there are steps towards a conspiracy theory, a lot of times there are steps back towards it. It doesn't all happen at once. There was a couple of things that eventually shifted for me. And some of them were, I'm guessing, because of those um, that feedback that we had. But also, you know, there was a major shift in my life where um, I got I got divorced. And as I got divorced, well, first of all, we moved down to the Boston area. Mm -hmm. And there I was having a lot more access to just lots of other people. And so you could say, you, then you could see people's reactions more when you say my child's not vaccinated or you spout some other kind of strange idea and you get to watch people's reactions to it. I think that was really important. Um, being in a society more, and, you know, being, you know, day to day, being depending on others and, and being around others, uh, it was important because then you could see the impact of, of everyone's collective actions towards things. You know, it takes the first snowstorm in Boston to realize that we're all in this together and that you have to all dig out. Um, but also, it, but the divorce, I think, was important because it gave, because a divorce is essentially a changing 
of a huge belief system that this is the way my life's going to go. This is the, you know, your ride or die partner in right. life. To, you think you're going to spend your, you're going to spend your, yeah. your dying days with this person. And then suddenly yeah. it's like, well, actually rip that yeah. chapter out and, 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 you know, start over. Yeah. And, yeah. and even, even if it's something you want to do, which in, in this case, it was something I wanted to undertake, it still requires, you know, just ripping everything out at the seams and, and trying to, to start again. Um, oh, it's a brutal and, process. Like, it's... yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but so there was that. So that that left me again. It left me open to new ideas. Just like uh, I was open to conspiracy ideas in the past, I was more open to new to new ideas. And then as I um, started, I so of course I I sat there and I said, I'm never dating again. You know, I'm just gonna focus on my child. But I hadn't instantly said, Oh, I'm gonna go vaccinate my child. It was I wasn't at that point yet. Um, and then I, of course, then almost immediately afterwards, uh, after I said, I was never going to really date seriously again, uh, met my current and hopefully never our only wife now, um, <laughs> that, uh, at, at a Starbucks, we, where, uh, it was just a random meeting where she, like, um, and she was really nice. I mean, I could go into that, but you don't need that for all this, but it's, uh, but, and she was really nice and she came from a really smart, uh, family who had a really good way of talking about things, even things that seemed strange or outlandish. They, they were not, they didn't ostracize. Like when I brought my daughter into their lives, they- How did they take know, they it were, that she wasn't vaccinated? Did they know? Or did they, they did. I mean, they knew, they knew pretty early on. Yeah. And I think certainly if, I, if instantly, I, you know, we were going to get married and then they found out that my child wasn't vaccinated, I think that would have been uh, a different conversation. But it was sort of like, as we were just starting to date, Mm. Um, I mean, I think there was a couple of things. One, they were very excited that Kate had found a, um, a nice person. And, and so they were like, he's nice, but you know, this is kind of weird. Uh, they were excited. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that was it. They were like, huh. This, and I was also a vegetarian at the time, which was also a no-no. At, at, like my mother-in-law is this great Jewish cook and she's just like, but what do I feed you? <laughs> and this sound, this is going to sound so contrary to, to the, my story, but it's like, even as a young child, I like at one point my parents caught me uh, like drawing little stamps. And I was like, these are food stamps to give to poor people. It's like, I always wanted to do things civically. I wanted to take part. I was big into politics um, and, you know, and, and always wanted to, to, to be a good citizen to a certain extent. And it's interesting because, you know, eventually I got to a point where I was basically being a terrible citizen by not keeping up my end of the vaccination and hoping that others would protect us. Um, it's sort of like somewhere along the line, I got the idea that the only way to be a good citizen was to sort of perfect your own lifestyle. Like, mm -hmm. you know, try not to drive, try not to eat meat. Uh, and so it's sort of this weird, good impulse turned. It's almost like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's like it turned into something uh, that was actually harmful to others. If there had been an outbreak, we would have been part of the problem that could have gotten people killed. Right. Oh, you know, and I could have got in my quest to be a good parent, to be the, like, I so wanted to be a good parent. I'm very involved in my children's life. Um, we want everything to go perfectly. My quest for that led to my daughter being unprotected, um, in fundamental ways medically that she could have been protected. Um, and that's, that's, that's that's humbling to realize that you can start out with such good intentions and end up in a very strange place and um it's just that so yeah i just find that uh, 
a very humbling experience and something I take with me now. I'm always like, what do I think I'm doing right? What do I think uh, is, is good for people? And let's check that. Let's see how other people are reacting to it. Let's see uh, if it's yielding good results. And it's I'm, because I feel like I have to always be prepared with the idea that I could get down a conspiracy uh, theory rabbit hole again. I mean, certainly when Donald Trump uh, got elected the first time, I was so bothered by that, that I was grasping at straws for how the election could have been overturned. And in that, I'm very, there are some eerie parallels between me, you know, with my good intentions of hoping to save quote unquote democracy, even if democracy made a bad choice, to the, the January 6th rioters who, you know, wanted to storm the Capitol because they thought they were saving democracy. So there's a lot of overlap there that you have to be, I have to be humble about. And I think that's helped me sometimes, sometimes during this uh, pandemic when I'm trying to persuade others that's, you know, to know that I was in those shoes and I know that a lot of people are doing things because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, and and they just happen to have a different way to get there. And it's 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 maddening, but it's I've been there. And so I, I can sympathize. Craig describes his loved ones as being quite hands-off in their approach to his descent into the anti-vax conspiracy theory rabbit hole. But if he described online discourse as hands-off when it comes to the topic of conspiracy theories, you couldn't be more inaccurate if you tried. It seems like when we're conversing with those we care about, we're careful and potentially more willing to leave people to their own devices. But once we turn on our devices, pun intended, it's a whole different story. Obviously, you've you've been you've been in the biz for a while. You you've been doing this for a while. Do you think, or do you feel that people have become more aggressive in the way they challenge people since the kind of dawn of the internet age? Um, you know, with things like anonymity online, and you know how, how they feel empowered by you know followers, and then the idea of you know the shock. The more shocking you are, the more likes you get, and therefore the better you feel about your own personal standing in society. Yeah, and I think this is both a cognitive and a behavioral issue. And what I mean by that is I, I do think that the way in which we have come to communicate in online spaces, which has been the primary way in which we have communicated, even if we talk about something like Zoom, um, mm. we can we communicate differently. When we know we don't have to deal with the emotional fallout of a difficult conversation or of a challenging conversation, and we don't in the same way in a Zoom conversation, you know, I can turn my screen off anytime. <laughs> I can say something really challenging to you or something really um, <clears throat> critical of you and then sort of disappear. Uh, we just, we behaviorally have changed the way we communicate. Mm. We communicate with less um, empathy, with less kind of uh, interpersonal complexity again. Um, we have a harder time wading through what I call the awkward silence or the awkward pause. We can avoid it at all times now. And those are the spaces where we actually in interpersonal interactions where we can have an aha moment or kind of, mm. oh, I do need to think about that. We just don't have those anymore in kind of a behavioral way. And what happens is our brain is so plastic and neuroplasticity basically in the research around interpersonal neurobiology tells us that what we, you know, whatever we expose our brain to is what we, our brain will wire 
for. So we develop mm -hmm. the capability of our brain by exposing ourselves to situations where we have to learn a new skill. And so right now, mm -hmm. since we have not been challenged and we don't tend to challenge ourselves toward uncomfortable situations or um, you know things we don't know about, it means we literally yeah. probably pruned off part of the wiring in the brain, which can be regenerated, but we, we are now you know, working with brains that are not used to complex and difficult and nuanced conversations. And then behaviorally, we're not ready for those things either. And so it really does deeply impact the way that we can have um, a really good, healthy, either disagreement or a kind of, a kind of vulnerable conversation where we, we make ourselves vulnerable to hearing the opinions of others or that whatever data or evidence the others have and letting it sit and rather than coming right back and attacking which also our digital communication tends to be you know lob lob and then lob back and lob and lob back. um we just we don't have the ability cognitively we don't have the ability behaviorally we've created a lot of habits that keep this kind of binary um happening in our communication and relationships and actually talking about habits um one habit that I think we all have, um, and if anyone listening to this thinks, oh, no, I, I don't have that habit, you're lying to yourself. We all have the habit of going on social media, regardless of what that is. It could be Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Um, we all have it. It is um, a very useful tool in a number of ways. Um, but it also is, is, is part of the problem, if we are going to be honest um, with ourselves. And, and how does social media reward conspiratorial thinking and kind of the anti-maximina does it reward oh, these movements it absolutely does and i think another background point to, to the question you've just asked is that and i don't have the exact <clears throat> statistic right now in front of me but a major uh, number or major percentage of the populace at least in the u.s um just as honest <clears throat> about the fact that they get their primary source of news is social media whether it's oh, yeah. the entrance point or the only point <laughs> that is a and it's a really high percentage of people who say that so i mean we work we work in a lot of schools across the country here in the uk um and again i don't have i don't have the stat but you know whenever we ask whenever we're, we're on the topic of media literacy and we ask the young people where they get their news from it is i would say every single school over 50 percent get their information from social media yeah which you know sometimes is the bbc through their social media account sometimes it's the guardian or the mail or whatever um but not always right and yeah so we have a couple issues here the first thing is that the algorithm every algorithm rewards and privileges um information that uh gets more comments or more likes, or even now with a, the kind of addictive design that we have with our tech, the longer we even just stay, you know, if we're scrolling through something and we stop on a certain post, even that informs our algorithm. And so, you know, we're going any, any kind of um, social media post uh, that is getting eyes on it is going to be privileged and shown to more people. Um, and mm. so, and then if you couple that with the fact that now we we no longer use research to mean peer-reviewed research that is based in a you know in creating a hypothesis and then testing it in with randomized samples now anything is called research and and we also have a world where we can um, make 
things look very, very, very uh, reliable, even if they don't have roots in anything. <laughs> so, so people can, um, you know, it, it's kind of like a game of, uh, what, did, what did we call that game? Telephone, where, you know, you whisper something in someone's ear and then they're supposed to whisper it and you hear the difference between how the first person said it and then the person at the end of the line said it. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it used to be called Chinese whispers, but I don't know if that's offensive now. <laughs> we might have to cut that out, but, <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. but that's what it used to be called anyway. So what, that, you know, that's a little bit what getting our news from social media is like. You know, mm. it, it's, often one step removed from the actual story or the actual research. And then it it just keeps getting more and more um, interpreted every time it's shared. Uh, And then it's fed based on, you know, so so a, a really boring study that comes out that shows us something that's only printed in a journal is not likely to make the social media rounds, <laughs> but kind mm. of a sensationalist claim that with some, you know, research that maybe isn't as um, true. Rigorous. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, and, can, you know, it, that's always going to capture more kind mm. of eyes. And then from there, the not only are we looking for that stuff, but our algorithm feeds it to us. And the other thing we have to just be aware of is that our algorithm also weeds out the, the kind of information or news stories that haven't been interesting to us in the past. So we keep getting just fed more and more of what we've already liked. And in a passive way, we never really become consciously cognitive of that. Which, and, and that's, and that's, I think the scary thing, because when Craig talked about him isolating himself from other viewpoints, he was physically, I mean, um, you know, heavy hippie vibes of, you know, physically being in a field of other, other people healthy living talking to animals and and having a, and having a good time and, and and you know everyone saying you know down with western medicine but he physically had to go somewhere for that to be a thing this is something that we are potentially doing to ourselves through our phones our laptops tablets whatever you know whatever device you use to connect with social media and that's and for me that's the kind of scary thing isn't it is that this is something that you can do to yourself whilst being at home you don't need to do what craig did you didn't you don't need to pack up and live in the new forest in the middle of deers like you you just don't need to do that anymore no and in fact the way that um our digital presence is created can impact us deeply for long periods of time i will i'll i will i've learned about this from individuals who live with and suffer with eating disorders. This is a, a really right. good topic or good place to put this information. You know, they will have done a lot of searches at really vulnerable and difficult times in their lives for tips on how to actually restrict their calorie intake or, you know, how mm-hmm. to uh, purge without hurting themselves as well. And even when they want desperately to disengage from those things that hurt them, their algorithm has now deeply established these kind of pathways and will continue to feed them that information that then puts them in vulnerable spots of staying in really difficult uh, life situations. And that's true for us now. You know, if you are in a period of your life where you are very lonely, where you do mm. want to feel exceptional or special, where you crave that co- the kind of community that these spaces exist, and you're doing a lot of searches and a lot of liking and commenting on that kind of stuff, even when you start to maybe question or want to look for other data, your algorithm is going to push against that by feeding you more of what was interesting to you at that really vulnerable time. Yeah, I, and in fact, actually, that that kind of um, 
reminded me of another thing that <clears throat> Craig spoke about, which was in regards to his um, his doctor. I mean, before that, he talked about you know a variety of different people and how they they reacted to um, the fact that he hadn't vaccinated vaccinated his um, his child. Um, you know, some refused to to engage, um, and that kind of confrontation seems to be see, almost seemed to, to to push him away. Um, and then he spoke about his doctor, um, I think it was the, the pediatrician, who, um, although didn't engage directly with the fact that he didn't vaccinate his child, he didn't refuse to see him. Like, he still um, tried to treat as best they could. Um, and I, uh, I wonder what role do you think that played in opening up a dialogue? And how should we as individuals approach a conversation with conspiracy theorists if we're ever you know, in our day-to-day lives, maybe in our work, come across someone like that. Right. This is another place where I feel we, you know, we have we have fallen into, again, a binary of either shaming the people that don't think like we do mm. or avoiding them. <laughs> and, and this just keeps us stuck in this kind of place where we don't um, get to, where we don't get to struggle with the complexity of this issue. And so, I am finding that it is so important to kind of use this idea of within with with some really good and healthy boundaries to try to leave every encounter with someone else respecting myself and the other person. So even if all we can find to respect about each other is that we're both humans (laughs) with our own ideas, at least we acknowledge that with each other. And I am finding that when we can invite people into those kind of spaces where, where we say, I definitely have a strong um, bias and opinion. I I feel like I have done a lot of work to make sure that the sources I trust are reliable. And I understand that you have a strong bias and opinion. And I'm wondering if we could could talk and share our stories in such a way that we um, can really hear each other. So the focus is on hearing, not on convincing. And and that can oftentimes um, open up kind of like what Craig's, you know, doctor did saying, I want to care for your child. And so, you know, we can share this deep care for your child. And in doing that, I'm also going to share with you my bias and opinion. Um, uh, I find that really works. And 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 it it works partially because it I can't ask someone to take a leap toward what I I'm standing, the space I'm standing in until I am taking a little bit of a leap to be with them in theirs. And I don't know if that makes sense. You know, we want these easy ways of having the the conversation. And this happens a lot. I get asked by journalists a lot. So how do you have the conversation with a person who's against or opposed to the vaccine? And again, we want this easy. Well, here are the three things you say to them. (laughs) And it's (laughs) that easy. It's we have a relationship. We do the hard work of having relationships with people who have very differing opinions. Now, if that conversation can't be civil, if we start feeling attacked, then I think it's also really important to be able to say, I, I tried to help people in my life be empowered to say things like, wow, or ouch, that, that felt like a personal attack. Um, I, I need to walk away from this conversation. But, you know, so having boundaries so that we aren't just trampled over, but also being mm. willing to be in these very difficult, weird, awkward spaces, again, that we're not used to being in anymore. And we don't necessarily feel like we have the skills. 
I remember we, we, we spoke a little while back and you said that you, you run a Facebook group. It's called Type 1 Diabetes Support and Information. It gets people from all over the world who are just have random questions about type 1 diabetes information. I'm screening to make sure there's not a lot of, um, you know, crack, crack about theirs. Right. Is there any disinformation that you ever see or misinformation that ever comes across that group? So. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, there'll be people with, there's always at least somebody or several somebodies, uh, but I think it's all one outfit that has an herbal cure for type 1 diabetes that they're always trying to push. And, As in and, uh, try to know, push through your group. Yeah. yeah they'll, they'll, like they'll put, it's like they'll, there'll be some kind of discussion, say about pregnancy and type 1 diabetes. And then there'll be, be someone who will suddenly be like, I, you know, couldn't get pregnant because I had type 1 diabetes, but then I was cured by herbal blah, blah, blah. You can go to this website. And so, um, con, my basically. job, yeah, it's a con. Yeah. And, and so I, uh, you know, ban those people and, and make sure that the group's running smoothly. Um, the nice thing about this group is that it's, while it's actually, it's not technically a Facebook group where people can just post things independently. It's technically a Facebook page. So people have to email me or, or message me and I can post their questions for them. And that's a good gatekeeping in this case, because that means some of these, you know, crackpot ideas don't uh, make it onto the, or most of these crackpot pages, uh, ideas don't make it onto the page. And now I'm realizing what I'm doing is I'm actually trying to reach the person on the fence. I'm trying to reach the person who's confused, the person who maybe has an aunt or uncle who's saying some kind of conspiracy theory about the COVID-19 vaccine, but they're not sure. Uh, because I feel like just like I couldn't, there were so many hard facts that didn't reach me when I was anti-vax and no amount of persuasion was going to get me because I wasn't, I wasn't ready for it. But I feel like there's, it's when I was ready for it, when people were persuasive and kind and calm, that's when I could hear it. When I was going through the disruption of the divorce and ready to think about new ideas, it didn't instantly, I didn't instantly have a light bulb moment like where I said, oh my goodness, now I need to get vaccinated. It took a long time still for my, or for my, I need to get my child vaccinated. Mm. It took a long time, but you know, I was ready for it. And so you're trying to hit people when they're ready for it. And that's maddening and it's slow. And I, you know, it's going to cause, if it were quicker, it would uh, prevent a lot of deaths, but it's just not the way it works. I mean, if it was quicker, we wouldn't be having this podcast because it'd be super yeah, easy. Exactly. We would have solved it already, right? <laughs> As Greg explained, the path that he took to becoming a fully-blown anti-vaxxer didn't happen overnight. It eventually manifested itself due to a series of relationships and crucial life events which greatly impacted his worldview. Slowly but surely, something he never realised was happening until his child was born. To use a chilling but fitting analogy, if a frog is put suddenly into boiling water, it will jump out. But if the frog is put in lukewarm water, which is then boiled slowly, it will not perceive the danger and will be cooked to death. We don't realise the extent of the danger we're in until we're in it. And then, once we're in it, we feel we may as well keep striding on forward into the abyss because, well, we've come this far, right? I want to talk about the, the sunk cost fallacy. Um, I was wondering if you could go a little bit into details to what it is and how how does it get intensified by online spaces yeah so the sunk cost fallacy just says that the longer that we um, are invested in a certain idea or behavior or pursuit 
the more Mm -hmm. we feel as though to abandon it would be to either admit failure or admit vulnerability or or that we've just lost all that time. One of the most potent places we see the sunk cost fallacy is in relationships where an individual, like relationships where someone will say like, oh, they're not my perfect partner, but we've been together two years. So, you know, I don't want to lose all that time. And they stay in the relationship and they begin to, what we see is, you know, that people begin to experience diminished um, satisfaction in life, kind of some mental health issues, because they know, mm. at, they don't know consciously, but maybe at an unconscious level, that they're just continuing to slog rather than making a hard choice. And so, again, if we think about the fact that social media spaces or digital spaces in general reward um sensationalism and reward, you know, getting deeper and deeper and being more and more certain, less and less complex. Um, It's going to, we're going to be louder about our viewpoints in those spaces, or at least more public about them. And so there is this kind of history that is now accessible at any time by, you know, you can Mm. through somebody or scroll through somebody's feed for a long while back. And, and if, and also if you know that you're going to be shamed and so in it with a topic as hot as the vaccine, if you have a lot of investment in saying the vaccine is, you know, not a, a good idea or unsafe or, or politically aligns you with a set of beliefs that you can't, um, or don't want to be associated with, um, and you, you know, people can see that and they and they know that if you are willing to step away from it, you will likely be called out or canceled or, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's just a lot of, uh, of personal risk in stepping away from those things we've been so committed to. So we tend to fall more firmly into that kind of sunk cost way of thinking. Conspiracy theories are a double-edged sword. They are unique because the more vermintly it is denied the more the conspiracy theories believes it to be true it's like the chicken and egg debate right you go around and round in circles and neither side will ever agree i know at points i've felt hopeless like there is nothing i can do to change someone's mind a conspiracy theory can normally be defined as a proposed plot carried out in secret usually by a powerful group of people it relies on the thought that the conspiracy theorist knows more than the rest of society For this reason, it is very hard to challenge those who believe in conspiracy theories. I know every one of us during the course of the pandemic at some point has engaged with an anti-vaxxer. It can feel like smacking your head against a brick wall. Ironically, sometimes that can be more productive. It's like there is no getting through to them. But what should you do? Silently watch on? Aggressively challenge? We talked about the idea of obviously, you know, the having the kind of uh, empathy-focused approach is is very much the not the only way necessarily, but the 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 way with the most potential for success. Um, does a hostile approach to countering misinformation to those who disseminate it? I mean, we're kind of thinking that it probably causes more harm than but good. But is it ever a justifiable way of dealing with misinformation like can it can it ever be can it ever be successful empathy is, uh, no you, well, empathy. Uh, the, uh, the uh, hostile approach. Oh, the hostile approach 
Um, I do not think so, <laughs> because all it does is um, for an individual who is being very loud and, and um, contrarian in online spaces, what they are looking for psychologically, I always think about like, you know, what, what an individual like that is looking for is an intensity of response, not a positivity of response. So, you know, this like, if you come with hostile uh, language or hostile affect emotion, um, it almost like it's a reward. <laughs> it's like, right. yeah, I got you. Um, so one of the things that I always try to do is be, um, so rather than hostile, I try to be radical in my empathy. <laughs> so if somebody is, you know, presenting this radical empathy, I like it. <laughs> so, you know, if somebody's being very like in an online space, rather than me com but coming back with a hostile argument about the content, I will oftentimes comment on the intensity behind the content. Like, wow, I, you're, I feel how committed to your stance you are. Um, that's a lot of feeling I get from that position you just expressed. Mm -hmm. And it, it sort of and also, is off, you know, it sort of like stops everything for a minute. There's nothing more annoying than you being angry at someone and them responding to you in the calmest, kindest tone imaginable. I think it, if anything, there's nothing more, uh, there's nothing more infuriating because you just, you just know you haven't rattled that person and that person isn't, isn't going to rise to that, to that level of, um, uh, what's it called? Emotional unhingedness, I guess. Yeah. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're like going to roll it. with it. <laughs> and that's the only, that's the only, and, and I, I don't want to call it a tactic because it is genuine to who I am, but that's the only way I've been able to have these meaningful conversations is in the early stages of them when I'm talking with someone, a friend, family mm -hmm. member who is um, choosing not to be vaccinated is in the early in the conversation, just continuing to say like, I, I, I feel how intense this is. I'm not trying to catch you. I'm not trying to shame you. I, I just would love for us to be able to have a little bit of a calm conversation. And you're right, at first it's sort of like, Ugh, but it, it eventually can settle in, but it takes a lot of, of time and mutual respect and, and energy. And just patience. I think crazy, crazy amounts of patience. <laughs> Moving to to hopefully arguably more more positive things, um, how does the programming look like? What does the programming look like, rather? Yeah, I I guess I would say that that deprogramming looks like um, feeling confident enough in our ability to tolerate discomfort. Um to be willing to seek out viewpoints and, and people who are different from us. Um, it, it would mean um, having support. It would, I, in my opinion, it would also mean having people who are willing not to mm. shame you or you know, put your nose in, in, the, in the mess you have maybe made. Um, so, so in some ways, just like with cults, you know, having having safe communities that you can lean on for support, uh, move toward. Yeah. So it isn't. I think we tend to have a, a a mindset right now, at least in America, maybe globally, 
that that we have to always think about what not to do. So if we're being deprogrammed, we need to not check in on those forums. We need to not get more information from these sources. Instead, I like to think about what can we actually add in that builds our health? So what are we walking toward as much as what are we walking away from? We have all felt the strain of the pandemic and the frustration with anti-vaxxers. But what can we do to help and challenge in a positive way that facilitates change? It is imperative that we understand the mind of anti-vaxxers, or more generally, conspiracy theorists. The process of deprogramming that train of thought is a slow journey. It's interesting because I was going to actually ask you about your turning point. Like, what was the, Was there like a flashpoint moment? And, and you kind of said that there mm-hmm. wasn't, apart from obviously the trigger of the divorce, which yeah. isn't really advice you can give to to everyone that believes in conspiracy <laughs> everyone theories. get like, divorced yes, the answer is yeah. a divorce <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah no i mean i think it's everyone's individual journey right. um i think i don't feel like there was a single moment there and the horrible thing is there might have been there might have been this one moment where it's like okay but it it served was just a shift over time and at some point there was a tipping point where i said okay I've got, I think we need to get this child vaccinated. And, um, but it, what's interesting is once I went over that tipping point and What that, was that tipping that, point for you? Like, what, I don't know. That's, I mean, oh, actually, no, I do remember. I'm sorry. It's, um, you know, I think it was finally that, you know, I was getting this persuasion from my, my in-law family and my, my wife. And again, very gentle persuasion. They weren't ostracizing me. They were they they weren't saying you can't be part of things, but they were like hey, we're concerned about your daughter, uh, you know, being like about her health. Um, and then I think it was that we were, my daughter was in a private school that was a very like, foo foo, you know, uh, crunchy hippie school, but it was good. It was a nice school at least uh, initially. Um, and then, but then it seemed to like my daughter seemed to need something a little bit different. So we were trying to get her enrolled into a public school and in and this is interesting the, i'm glad you brought this up because it's like this is where the stick comes in you know you got the carrot for persuasion you know, you know like my in-laws but you also have the stick where in maine it was very easy at the time i don't think it's as easy now to just say i'm against vaccines my child's not getting vaccinated here i sign a piece of paper there you go i've got uh philosophical differences against uh vaccines which makes to me no sense but it's not religious it's just philosophical when we get down to massachusetts uh it's a lot harder to you have to have a really more at least at the time i think it's even harder now you have to have a more concrete reasoning i think you have to be a part of a church or something and so when we were to not get you vaccinated you have to be part of a church or something like that right yes thank you for clarifying and it's and so when I was trying to get my daughter enrolled into a public school, they're like, look, you need to have vaccines. Um, and at that point, right. I was like, so they were right. not going to, they were not going to enroll your kid. Well, wow. uh, yeah. I mean, or at least, at least no one had yet closed the door on me, but that was going to be the idea. And so I went back to right. her mother and I said, we got to get this child vaccinated. You know, we had this idea. It doesn't really hold water anymore. I think she's going to be fine. Let's get her vaccinated. And, uh, I, you know, not going into too many details on privacy concerns. I actually ended up going to court to to yeah, to, to help persuade. Yeah, to help persuade at least. There wasn't wow. a court order, but I had to, that was part of the process where I'd say, actually, as part of this divorce, we really have to get our child vaccinated. 
Um, and wow. you know, in the end, in the end it worked and you know, my daughter got caught up. She's fine. Uh, she's had the, since then she's had, um, shoot, I'm trying to remember the name for it. The, uh, the cervical cancer one, uh, HPVC. Oh wait, uh, H. I can't remember the name, but there's there's a vaccine that you get as a teenager here. Uh, she had that. Um, she's had flu vaccines. It took a few more years to get those uh, running smoothly within the mm. family. Um, and she just, you know, she just had her booster shot. Amazing. Um, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, actually, like yesterday, she just had her booster shot yesterday. She was like. Oh, congratulations! Now, so she's she's fully like she's fully on the on on the train now. There. <laughs> yeah, and and so is my son. I I, I now have a son uh, 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 that we've adopted. Oh, congratulations! Um, thank you. Yeah, and he's uh, he's six years old. And as soon as you know now, because I I'm a science writer, I'm watching the the vaccines work their way through the uh, the approval process. And so as soon as I hear something, I'm like trying to get the vaccines. Yeah, appointments for everyone. So I was one of like the first in line. We were one of the God, first you've in gone, line. you've oh. gone completely U-turn. You've gone from <laughs> hating them to being like, <laughs> can't well, get I enough. Like, wait, let's bring out some more. <laughs> <laughs> it is like that. And, and which is again, every now and then I'm like, am I doing this right? Am I now just a nut when it comes to vaccines? Like, <laughs> you know, like have I gone too far? Like, it's, you know, it's again, humbling. It's like, cause I, in the back of my head, I'm always slightly distrustful of my own intentions now. Now that I've gone through this, I'm like, okay, is this rational? Mm. And sometimes I can catch myself with some random, again, something small, something random. And sometimes I can't. Like I gave money to a recount effort in 2016 that Jill Stein of the Green Party was doing to try and get Donald Trump's election overturned. And it was it was nonsense. There was no way it was going to happen. And <laughs> But I just hoped. I was like, I'm sure of this now. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, you never outgrow the conspiracy Just on, on, on the kind of grander um, scheme of things, um, we often see that, you know, politicization of issues um, can feed into conspiratorial thinking. Um, and, you know, we, we've, we've seen this, as, as we mentioned before, of, you know, the, the, the kind of discrediting of, of experts, you know, the fact that we don't need experts, you know, that's kind of politici- politicizing um, or rather denigrating or degrading or, or, or undermining someone's years of, of, of life's work. Um, how does this link to confirmation bias and the kind of sunken cost fallacy? Yeah, I think, um, again, confirmation bias, well, both of those things um, keep us in a place where we feel psychologically certain. So again, they they kind of address our fear. And so when there is, when we can say um, this certain political ideology uh, is is what I I ascribe to, or I believe in, it allows us to um, kind of unconsciously escape some of the complexity that would be required for our own kind of critical thinking and decision-making group think is another mm-hmm. way of saying, it, you know, but so it, it um, when, again, if we, if we um, can lean into a community that will make a decision for us and political mm-hmm. thinking tends to be that way now and very starkly uh, defined <laughs> communities. Um, I, I think it just really, helps us with fear and and we don't 
know how to handle, again, we don't know how to regulate our own emotions. So we'll say if my political affiliation can regulate them for yeah. me by <laughs> giving me an answer, it, it, it's just another way It's almost like passing on your responsibility to make decisions or your responsibility to think to, um, to, someone, to else. someone else. There isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach to misinformation because everybody's circumstances are different. So that, of course, is a huge challenge for anybody trying to deal with potential misinformation about vaccines. What would you offer as, as advice to someone that is, first of all, someone that is an anti-vaxxer at the moment, or someone that it, you know has a family member or a friend or, or, or a well-wisher or whatever, that they know that person's in um, the kind of thralls of a, of a conspiracy theory. Um, mm hmm and you know, yeah. for instance, isn't getting the isn't getting the COVID vaccine for 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 because of the, that belief. Like, what what advice would you give to the to that person? Yeah, I think you know, I think first of all, I you know, my heart goes out to you. It's really, uh, it's a difficult process. It's a difficult process to be an anti vaxxer and have the world against you and and think you're right and and start to have doubts. It's a difficult process to have someone you love that uh, is is has a conspiracy theory that they're attached to. Um, I think a couple things. One, if you are leaning towards being anti-vax, uh, and if you ever, even if not, even if now, if you're listening to this and thinking I'm full of it and, and, and you know, completely off my rocker, and years from now, if you start questioning your anti-vax beliefs, it's okay. It's, it's, it's a hard process to come back from. Uh, but it's the work is worth it, and we all make mistakes. And you should, hold, you know, be gentle with yourself as you reevaluate your decisions. If uh, you're on the fence, I mean, I think it's the same thing I tell other people, which is, you know, we're not smarter and we're not more emotionally um, distant than the experts. And there's such a consensus viewpoint that using the best inv available information with uh, what we know now, you know, really changing a dynamic. There, the dynamic, you know, the advices get vaccinated. The risks of the infinitesimally small risks of getting vaccinated completely are so, so much uh, better than the risks of getting uh, COVID nineteen or spreading it to someone you love. Uh, for the people who are who have a loved one who are you know in enthralled with us. Um, a conspiracy theory. I think my thinking is, you know, fine. It's okay to set limits. It's very okay to say, this is not okay. It's even okay to say, I can't have you come to my house or, or do X unless you're vaccinated or masked. Even if people will blow up at you and be upset with you with it, it's okay to set those limits and see if it's possible to find areas where you can talk about things, areas where you can show your love. You say, I'm sorry you're feeling that way, I, you know, uh, but I still love you. Um, or, you know, is there something else I can do to help you? Is uh, I can't help you with this because I, I think it's harmful to you that, for you to go down this road. But is there something else I can help you with? And to also say, even if they close the door, say, my door is open, uh, you know, we need when you're ready to talk about this, I still love you and you still have a home here with me. And I think that's all you can do. And it's hard and it's a lonely process, but it's the only thing that's worked for me. And it's the only thing I think that works for 
people when they make a mistake is to give them a road to come back to. And on those, and also on those days where you are too angry, try not to talk with them if you can help them. <laughs> What can people do, um, in your professional opinion, from a sort of a uh, psychological point of view, to protect themselves against anti-vaxxer conspiracies? Because one thing that's quite beautiful, I think, about Craig is that he he went in, you know, head first, head first into this thing, really kind of sampled everything that there is to sample around the, <laughs> the anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory, and then kind of came out the other end, um, in a in a really fascinating way, in the sense that you know he he. He recognizes that he's, you know, he says that he's quite a empathetic human being, quite an emotionally driven human being that, um, you know, get, gets worked up about certain things. And he knows this about himself. Um, and that, I think, was was the most beautiful thing about his experience and the way he was talking, is that, you know, regardless of how much time you may think that he wasted, he did find himself in the sense that he now understands how emotionally driven he is. And... It almost felt when I was speaking to him that that was kind of the, the the massive silver lining of his whole ordeal was that he now knows how to protect himself because he knows what his weakness is when it comes to these kind of things. And he knows, therefore, how to do his check and balance. And I was wondering, from your own professional perspective, what can we mm-hmm. do to go against that, which doesn't involve ourselves taking the same journey that he did? Right. I think, um, again, making sure that we have really uh, diverse mm-hmm. lives or we have we have a diversity of investment of ourselves when we start seeing that oh my goodness my entire being is invested in an I- identity that is associated with a political party or a way of thinking or you know maybe i need to make sure that i back away a little bit and make sure i invest a little bit of myself in something else so you know if we are finding that we are sinking hours into forums or, um, you know, then maybe making sure, okay, I need to step back and play Mm -hmm. a game of ping pong, or (laughs) I need to learn to crochet, or um, anytime we see a huge bulk of our lives and energy and emotional energy going toward one thing, that's always a good marker Mm -hmm. that we are probably vulnerable to being influenced unduly. Um, Also making sure that we have a wide variety of relationships and that at least in some of them, um, that we have some relationships, maybe this might be a professional person like a therapist or, or, you know, another friend in our lives who we invite to um, empathically and respectfully point out things that they might see from the outside as concerns. You know, Mm -hmm. Craig talked about this with his parents. They brought, you know, brought concerns up um, and clearly it registered for him. He just, it it took him a while to to actually listen, but, um, and then making sure that we also um, have places where we feel valued. I think that's another really important, and that's so hard right now. It is so hard and so challenging, but if we don't feel a sense of personal value or like we matter, we are much more vulnerable to letting someone else tell us how we can matter <laughs> and falling into those traps. So those are yeah, the three no, things no. I think I And, and what can we do? Um, and, and sorry, how can we challenge commitment bias and hold ourselves and others uh, accountable? Like, can we? Yeah. Yeah. So I do that for myself by just making sure that I am um, Mm. staying in contact with people who have very different opinions than I do and, and asking them 
if they would please share what they are reading and what, so I can be aware and so that I can really be making sure that I'm not missing something. And I try to be very criti critically, um, I, I try to approach even the sources that I find reliable with a critical mindset and, and try to really dig, dig in and understand um, the foundation of what I am trusting in terms of information. And then again, um, understanding that changing our mind or coming to the belief or idea that we may have not seen the full picture is not a failure. It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of really complex maturity. <laughs> but I think we don't get reinforced for that very no, much in no, our world not right at all. now. I'd, I'd actually argue. <laughs> um, and finally, what would you... What should you do if you see someone becoming embedded in a conspiracy theory? Like you see someone taking, um, obviously not necessarily the same path as Craig, but going down that same road. What what what, what should we do? I think um, the first thing I would say is try as much as we can, as much as mm -hmm. I would try as much as I can to um, come toward them with insights about what I see going on underneath. Anytime you're, you go toward somebody who's you know, leaning toward a conspiracy theory and just try to challenge their facts, it will do nothing other than maybe mm -hmm. inflate their commitment to the mm -hmm. path they're already on. So coming toward, coming toward that conversation instead with an awareness of that person's humanity, like I noticed that, that um, almost everything I'm hearing from you is about this one thing, or I notice the emotional intensity that you have toward this um, new stance you're taking. And I just want to point that out and tell you that I, I see that. And that, that can be a sign of, of an unhappiness or a vulnerability. And, and I'm, I'm here mm. for it in a non-shaming way. So again, rather than just attacking the facts, which will almost always inflate someone's or or entrench someone's commitment, coming with um, humanity and vulnerability and care. Conspiracy theories, deprogramming and everything in between are messy. There's no one reason why one comes to believe in a conspiracy theory or one way to pull someone out. What we need to understand is that it is more than just a belief. It is a community which fundamentally tied to interpersonal relationships and of course mental health. It is a humbling but necessary realization that we all need to come to. We as a society are deeply bound to our place, our time and our tribe. This is something that politicians and academics from across the political spectrum can agree on. When everyone around us is right, we deserve little credit for conforming. However, when everyone around us is wrong, we're also likely to fail. True persuasion is much more challenging than winning a debate. And this is something that we all need to remember when engaging with conspiracy theorists. Sweeping away falsehoods is of little use unless you can replace the lie with a meaningful and empowering truth. You can't yank a person from their community and then leave them homeless. Craig and Doreen have raised some excellent points about the need to be kind and patient. If you can take one thing away from this episode, it should be abandoning the assumption that we can replace something 
no matter how malignant, with nothing. I want to say a massive thank you to Craig for sharing his incredible story with us today and to Doreen for providing some expert advice on how to tackle online spaces and conspiracy theories. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.